This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. How's it going, Bible nerds? We're talking about Galatians 3, so let's take a closer look. Let's do it. If you watched the story yesterday, um, you will know I opened with the creating the tension for the story through the Santa Claus tradition. Right. Um. This is one of those rare times that I actually got to watch the story before we filmed this episode. Um, Did so, you? Yeah, we watched it this morning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is a rare time that you got to watch the story before we're, we we're filmed the content. We're recording this really late. Yep. So I'm going to know more than I usually do. Yep. So if you watched it, you, you will have known that I created the tension through the Santa Claus narrative. Now, I want to clarify. I don't have any problem with the Santa Claus narrative. Right. I will continue to use the Santa Claus narrative for my kids. Um, but I wanted to be intentional about how I told the Santa Claus narrative because actually the St. Nicholas piece of the story is a piece of incongruent grace given generosity. Right. Yeah. That's not what Santa Claus has become. Right. So I want to keep the Santa Claus image because actually I think I think Saint Nicholas is doing the right thing right. with the whole idea. I just think what Santa Claus has become now um is just a really harmful narrative that you're only deserving of something if you do something good mm. because that's really not the message of the gospel. Yeah. And in fact, if it were, I mean, no, I wouldn't be a Christian. Right. Um, like that is the beauty of the Jesus metaphor, right? Yeah. It's that God himself gave of himself when he didn't have to for people who messed up something God had already given them. Literally, nothing about that story says that humans have done anything other than mess it up. Right. And God continues, out of his love for humanity, reconcile it back to himself. Mm. For people who have done nothing to earn it, that's what this text is talking about. Yeah. Is that we've done nothing to earn it. That that's what I think. So in verse 23, the text says, Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. That word justified is the kind of word for being covered for your sin. That that like stopgap has been made and you're no longer held accountable for the punishment of sin. But the law, the law is there to show us the need for grace. 
Like I'm convinced of that truth. Yeah. When you grew up, what what do you think you were what was communicated to you about the purpose of the law? To keep us in line. It was like it was like the moral code, right? Yeah. It was like it was like the thing it, you had to do for your ethic. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. It's a code of ethic is what like I have generally believed about the law growing up. It's a list of things not to do. Yes, exactly. Which, oddly enough, most of the law, the Torah, not actually legal code language at all. Right. It's stories. Right. And of the legal code language, as much as they're about things not to do, there's things to do. Right. Like care for the vulnerable. Right. Care for the immigrant, the foreigner, the orphan, which... Oddly enough, I don't remember hearing very many sermons about that. Mm-mm. It like the law was communicated to me the same way it was to you that it was a list of things not to do. Yeah, I don't think that's the message of the law at all. Agreed. Yeah, the message of the law is actually just the perpetual communication through love and grace of humanity's need for grace. Right. Um. Like and it, uh, I think Paul's right. Right, this would be the Romans' language, that that the law has put us under condemnation. Right, but there's no condemnation in Christ. Right, mm-hmm. and this is what he's communicating again here in verse twenty four, that the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. Because there is no justification through the law. I mean, think think back through Hebrews, right? What does Hebrews 11 say that Abraham was justified by? His faith. Mm. Now, different experience of that faith in Abraham's time because we're pre-Jesus. But overall, justification only comes through faith. And... Faith from a people who perpetually cannot stop sinning. Right, yeah. Like the earth is just full of it. And because of that, we have this perpetual need for grace, which Christ has given. And that's our gift. Christ is our gift. The grace that comes through faith in Jesus is our gift. This is this conundrum is what I mean when I say in the story that it is an incongruent grace. That the receiver of the gift of grace has done nothing to earn the position of being a receiver of the grace, of the gift. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's unique to Christianity. Oh, for sure. That is unique to Christianity. Yeah. Um, And for me, it's the beauty of the story. I say it all, I would not be here if not for Jesus. Um. And that statement is true because of the incongruent grace. It is God himself giving of himself in order to save a people whom he loved 
because they screwed it up. Is there not a more beautiful image of what faith and love and grace are? The incongruent grace piece, the incongruent gift, is something that I don't think can be missed because I also think it's been missed for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and John Barclay, the book, um, it's behind you. Up, uh, uh, ooh, Paul, yeah. Paul and the gift. Right yeah. yeah, right there. If you're watching on YouTube, it's right there by John Barclay. Um, John studies um, ancient forms of gifts. Dusty. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I don't. I don't read most of those books often. Right. Gotcha. I've read them before and they're resources now, so they just kind of sit there and collect dust. Gotcha. But John studies ancient forms of gifts and gift giving, specifically metaphors in ancient literature. And what he finds is that there are six ways to perfect the idea of a gift. So like what what the ultimate gift experience, what would those be? Like what would the what would the ultimate gift experience be for you? For me, mm-hmm. walk that out for me. What what are you asking in that question? What would be your perfect gift, and who would give it to you? What would perfecting the metaphor? Right. What what's the perfect gift? Dude, I don't even know. It's so it's such a foreign concept to us. I have no idea. Do you know why it's such a foreign concept to us? I think because as Americans we're entitled. Oh, okay. I feel as, that. especially for like me and you being middle class white, mm. and even even when we weren't middle class white, like you don't remember very many of these days. I don't think, but I remember being broke. Yeah, I remember when our family was dirt poor, poverty level poor. I I remember more of that than I think you know, but like maybe so. I remember a, a good portion of it. I mean, we we moved to the Anoak house, and we were we were by that point we were out of the poverty level, right? Um, and we moved there when I was going into my eighth grade year, so I would have been I yeah. 11? No. No, there's no, no way. Because I, I was 10. I was 13. I remember specifically, we've got the timelines mixed up and that's fine, but I was like seven or eight when we moved in that house. Yeah, that, that makes sense because you're six years younger than me and I'm saying that I was 13. My first math was off, but yeah, I, yeah. I was going into my eighth grade year. I would have been 13. Okay. So... I think we as middle class, white, very privileged people, and I think if you live in America, largely you feel this to some level. Yeah. I think it's entitlement. I think so. We don't we don't have the same kind of idea of a gift that other people have because for most of us, multiple times a year, we're guaranteed a gift. Right. And so, like, 
the gift giving element. Like, and this is another example. You know the five love languages thing. Mm. Okay. I know lots of people that do lots of things related to relationships. And I, I'm not a huge fan of the love language thing. I, I think it can be somewhat helpful, but there's no neuroscience for it. So it's like there's no science behind it, right. which makes me a little weary. Plus, when I took my test, my number two language, receiving language, was was one of them. I'm not going to be that vulnerable and tell you which one. Was one of them. And through like therapy and meditation, I've realized that it's not a love language. I need that thing, but it's not a love language reason. It's not how I receive love. It, I need it for another reason. So I don't really love that thing, but I talk about it all the time. I've never met somebody that their love language is gift giving. Oh, Have you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, you know this person decently well, but yeah. Okay, but how many people do you know of their love language? Because there's only five dominant ones, right? Yes. Um, I Do you know more than five people of their love language? Yes. That's actually a common conversation for me. Okay. Is how many of them, how many people do you know have gift giving as their love language? Yeah, like one or two. And how many people would you say you know their love language overall? Oh, probably 12 or 13. So it's overwhelmingly disproportionate that the gift giving is lacking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For it's, sure. It's because we're entitled. Yeah. It's because we've, we've created a society where we're almost guaranteed a gift. Yeah. This is also my problem with participation trophies. Uh. Um, like, oh my there's God. something, there's something special. There should be something special about receiving a gift. Agreed. Um, I don't understand how that translates to participation trophies. It's a gift for participating in the event. That's literally what it is. You didn't earn it. You didn't win anything. But we've given it to you. So we've just created a society where we're entitled to a gift, which I really do feel like has ruined our metaphor of grace mm -hmm. because the metaphor of grace, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a disciplinarian for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ, Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring according to the promise. Everything about this is incongruent grace. Right. There's not a single thing in here that is about congruent grace or earning the spot of grace. You're given it because you're loved. You're given it because you're in need of it. And so I feel like we've missed 
the experience, the truth of the fact that this is a gift. That's why I love John's book. Because we are entitled in America. Right. We, we feel like we're guaranteed that gift, which makes us miss the beauty of the gift that is Jesus because our natural disposition of our experience is to say that, oh, well, I'm already deserving of this. Right. And I will say there's an element of the Christian tradition that I don't want to fall too far forward into. There, there's an element of liberal Christianity that would say that the image of God guarantees you grace. Because God loved you and made you in his image and likeness. And so that that very truth alone, no matter what you did, guaranteed you grace because you're a piece of the image of God. I don't want to go there. I, I actually don't think that's helpful. That ruins the beauty of the metaphor mm -hmm. because now God's done something that he's obligated to do rather than something he did because he longed to do it. That ruins the story. That ruins the metaphor. Actually, the truth that I want to hold to is that God didn't have to do this at all. God's initial gift to us was actually creating us in the first place. And when we messed it up, God didn't have to fix it. Right, yeah. But not only did God fix it, but when he fixed it, he didn't make us have to earn it. We're not saved by works of the law. We didn't have to earn it. And when he did it, this is the beauty of the last half of this little section. He did it in a way where we all became equal. Abraham's covenant, when it's given to Abraham in the narrative, it feels very exclusionary. It feels tribal. It feels empirical. Mm. I will make you a great nation, and your offspring will multiply and be fruitful. It feels empirical and powerful and exclusionary because it's all stemming from one man and his family. But when Paul gets around to interpreting what happens in the incongruent gift of Jesus, Paul says it's not that at all. For in Christ, in the experience of the gift, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer the, the main piece of exclusionary reasoning for experience with fellowship with God. Jew or Greek. That's broken down. If you want to take that more macro level, all of our um, ethnic and race constructs have been broken down. There's no longer slave or free. They've broken down the major social, economical construct. Free people versus enslaved people. In an ancient world... You weren't considered wealthy if you were free, but you weren't the bottom of the barrel right? because you at least owned your own freedom. So I've broken down the most largest so socioeconomic construct. And in breaking that down, 
I've also liberated captives, which you should think like Luke 4 kind of imagery here. And there's no longer male or female. I've broken down the gender barrier now. In the patriarchal society, I've just said that genders are equal. Right. Nothing about this is exclusionary. Right. Not a single thing. And yet all of us are undeserving of the gift. And yet we're all given. I mean, think about this narrative. What what does this what does this language is Paul writing Paul's writing this to Galatia? What happens to the Greek slave woman that hears this? The most oppressed person on this list. Fell into every single category of oppression. Yeah, what happens to her in this moment when she hears this, and Gives then she, and then she hears, yeah. and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, mm-hmm. heirs according to the promise. Yeah, if there ever was an empire, I can be a part of it. But also, it's not an oppressive, manifest, destiny, gold empire. It's an empire of beauty and grace and harmony and unity. All of us are one in Christ Jesus. And all of them, undeserving, and yet given the ultimate experience of the gift of Christ.